0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
0: Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University and author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Incredibly timely and incredibly valuable. He's also the author of six other books, including Deep Work, which was the subject of an earlier conversation I had with Cal, in Episode 7, in that work, deep work, he argued that our ability to concentrate without distractions is becoming all too rare. He sold his first book to Random House in the summer after his junior year of college. You're not going to find him on Twitter, though, nor Facebook, nor Instagram. But you can often find him at home with his family in Washington, D.C., or, writing essays for his increasingly popular website, calnewport.com. In this episode, we discuss Cal's research on digital decluttering and how it increases one's productivity, maximizes the return on one's investment in technology use, improves one's overall happiness, and enhances genuine social connections. Cal talks knowledgeably about the ways in which social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, in order to increase their value for their initial public offerings, strategically and deliberately engineered their products to generate compulsive use and be addictive. He talks about how our overuse of technology doesn't make us more productive because we're not using it wisely. He recommends being intentional with our use of technology, adopting a philosophy of digital minimalism. Doing so, in his view, starts with identifying one's core values, taking a 30-day decluttering hiatus, reevaluating what's really important, realizing the value of solitude, and consciously reintroducing technological tools if and only if they promise real benefit. The result is a greater sense of freedom and enhanced performance. I am a firm believer and supporter of Cal's approach, even though I have not completely disconnected from social media, as he has. In my total leadership classes at Wharton, I've seen that having students take Significant time to think about and articulate what's truly important to them, what they value, what kind of person and leader they want to become in their lives, what they stand for, and who is important in their lives, and why those people are important. All that self-analysis and discussion sets the stage for effective, short, digital detox experiments that are more than just mindless breaks because they are intentional and rooted in an understanding of one's values. The choices they then make about decluttering or reducing their online activity aligns with their values, and so doing so is not only, well, not painful after the initial shock of withdrawal, it's liberating and enjoyable. So perhaps a 30-day retreat isn't the only approach, but in any event, I guarantee you're going to be learning some very useful ideas and practices, and you'll be inspired by this discussion with Cal Newport about digital minimalism, a philosophy for our time. And so now, without further ado, it's Cal Newport, Cal Newport. Welcome back to Work and Life. Stu,
1: thanks for having me back.
0: It's it's great to have you here. Um, I, I want to make sure that we quickly get to uh, the the development of one's um, philosophy about technology and, and how you help people get there with your book. Um, and And some of the practices that emerged from your recent research on this, but if we can start with your aim is, as I take it, to help people lead more intentional lives. Do I have that right
1: that 's right I mean the core the core of what people seem to be uneasy about today uh, it 's not really utility it 's not is this technology useful or is this technology useless? It's really much more about autonomy. Mm-hmm. This idea that people feel that they're using these screens more than it's healthy or more than they know it's useful to the exclusion of things that they know is more important, that there's a sense of emotional manipulation, manipulation of their beliefs. And so the struggle here is really a struggle about who's in control mm-hmm. of what I spend my time on and why I do it.
0: Who is in control? And, how did you come to focus on this this important question?
1: Well, my last book was a business book. You mentioned it was called Deep Work. And in some sense, it was about the unintentional consequences of technology at the professional workplace. So mm-hmm. what happened when email and Slack came in, it was not all positive. There were some side effects, and so I got into it. But when I was on the road talking about this book and, and interacting with readers, one of the more common pieces of feedback I kept getting was, okay, maybe we buy this premise about tech at work, but what about tech in our personal lives? Yes. And I got the sense that that was becoming more urgent for a lot of people, and that it was a, a somewhat recent phenomenon, maybe a mm-hmm. phenomenon of the last two years or mm-hmm. so.
0: And people were We're speaking past- now in 2019, early 2019. Um, this is just for posterity when people listen to us at some later point. So it's just in the last couple of years, you've, you've seen what, Cal?
1: I've seen people shift from, you know, the self-deprecating jokes, oh, I look at my phone too much, to actually starting to feel distressed. Mm-hmm. When I used to make public statements or write op-eds for major publications that would be anti-social media. I would get a lot of flack. Last couple of years, it doesn't happen as much. And mm-hmm. People are more receptive. So there's a zeitgeist transformation
0: happening mm-hmm. out
1: there. And I was sensing that going on, that people were shifting and starting to look at this like a real problem mm-hmm. and starting to look for real answers.
0: Yeah, and there, there's there's been a wave of criticism against uh, against the, the big tech companies that have brought these tools into our lives, uh, and as, as you put it, to to design addiction into them. Um, do I ha- am I am I capturing that accurately?
1: Uh, that is right. I mean, it, the whole model of the smartphone as a constant companion. Mm -hmm. something that we look at all day long. We're used to that now. And we think, yeah, that's just technology in the 21st century. That's just an emergent reaction to what you do when you're now connected to the world through networks. But that's not actually the real storyline. When you dig closer, what you see is that the original smartphone was not introduced to be a cost companion. It had some very particular uses. Original social media was not something you use compulsively. You would post things about yourselves occasionally. And you would read what your friends had posted occasionally. Mm-hmm. So the reason this all shifted was primarily because the major social media platforms led by Facebook had to get their user engagement minutes up so that they could succeed with their IPO. In order to get their user engagement minutes up, they had to figure out, how do we get people not logging onto the Facebook.com once or twice a week? How do we get them looking at it 85 times a day? And that's when they began to engineer into the mobile experience in particular these sort of addictive elements that were meant to try to create this type of compulsive use. So this thing we have today where we're constantly looking at our screens outside of work, there's nothing fundamental about it. It's just a business plan being instantiated.
0: And it's not what Steve Jobs had in mind when he introduced the iPhone in 2007, is it?
1: Now, Jobs was a minimalist, which meant he wanted to find things that people already thought were really important mm-hmm. and then make those experiences even better. And so if you go back like I did, and talk with some of the original developers of the original iPhone or look at Jobs' uh, speech, the keynote address he gave in 2007 when he launched the iPhone. Mm-hmm. It was clear that there's two things that they were trying to solve with that. One, they wanted a better iPod, and two, they wanted a better phone, and they thought they could do that in one package. You didn't have to have. Cal, I, let me just
0: jump in here. Some people might not remember what an iPod is, so you'll have to remind us. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs>
1: Think of it like an iPhone that only plays music.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you.
1: <laughs> exactly. But the, the bigger point be that Jobs never had in mind this notion of the cost of companion model because no one right. had that in mind. That came later, mm-hmm. and it came for those reasons I talked about before. A small number of companies needed people to look at their phones a lot more so that their IPOs could succeed.
0: And now, what's what are the costs? What, what's the most prominent? You, you say you're here. You've heard from your readers uh, and, and audiences that there's a personal cost. What does that look like? What, what do you see as the most um, devastating uh, effects, negative effects that, that these tools have had?
1: There's some direct cost, right? Like this notion that Twitter, for example, is algorithmically optimized to try to stoke outrage, and that could be exhausting or bad for civic culture. But really the cost that I think people are most worried about is the indirect cost. Of the time they're spending looking at the screen is time they could be spending doing things that are much more important for building a flourishing human life. It's the opportunity cost, mm-hmm. not the direct negative consequences of looking at the screen that seems to have people getting upset.
0: Now, uh, we're not going to be decrying the these tools in and of themselves because there are benefits to them. So when you go give your talk at Facebook, I'm sure they've invited you many times to speak there. I'm just guessing here. Have, have they?
1: I, I, don't, I don't think I'm their favorite person.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if I were the leadership group of Facebook, I'd want you in there poking around and, and, and uh, really challenging uh, the, the ideology of, uh, of, of growth and invasiveness at any cost uh, because what you're saying here is helpful. But w- what would they say? If If we had them on the line here, what would they say is their um, rationale for the way they're evolving and what they're doing to try to correct some of the errors that they perhaps might have made in in their um, design that makes these um, these tools, let's call them, uh, addictive and in some ways destructive?
1: Well, Facebook usually does two things with responding to these type of critiques. First, they try to intertwine their particular walled-guarded service with the internet as a whole. So they'll say, we just help connect people. Why are you against connection, right? As if you're against the internet, or there's no other way to use the internet to connect with people. Hmm. And then they do like to steer the conversation away from the fact that their business model is built on addiction, that it's built on this type of engagement. So they look at other boogeymen, like, well... We have to be careful to make sure that your privacy isn't breached or that uh, data isn't misused. But a lot of that is a smokescreen from the underlying thing that they cannot change, which is for them to maintain a $500 billion market cap. They need people to click on this app compulsively. Mm -hmm. They can't fix that. If they fix that, the company goes out of business, or at least it's a shell of their current size. You cannot have a $500 billion market cap. if your user engagement, which is the direct source of your revenue, drops precipitously. And that's what would happen if they moved away from the more compulsive features of their most important services.
0: And is it the same for Twitter?
1: Twitter, uh, same idea going on with Twitter, yes. They they use a couple uh, different types of ideas that Facebook does, but Twitter needs you to do that endless scroll. To keep coming back, to keep scrolling, to keep looking more. Their biggest weapon is the retweet, this idea that you could come back, for example, and see – did my counter go up? Did someone approve of what I said? Did someone mm-hmm. pass along what I said? And in general, that type of immediate feedback to users about other people's approval, that's the foundation on which all of these platforms made their shift from let me post information, you post information into something that uh, engendered a sort of more compulsive use.
0: So these, um, these companies are not gonna regulate themselves. They're not going to change, is is what you are pessimistically concluding, correct? Right. And so it's up to us to, to make the change. And the good news, of course, is that we do have more control than we might currently think. And and that's that's what you are advocating for and, and actually presenting a way forward. So uh, take us through it. Uh, what does one do to try to save oneself from being... Uh, compulsively uh, and destructively addicted to, uh, to our, our smartphones and the, 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 the social media platforms that are designed to keep us engaged in them?
1: Well, my argument is that tips aren't working and good intentions aren't working. So if you feel like you're looking at your screen too much, it's probably not going to cut it to say, look, I turned off my notifications. Or I do a digital Shabbat, you know, one, one day a week, I don't look at my phone, or I try not to bring it into the bedroom. We've seen that these forces are too powerful, and generally speaking, people are not succeeding with nibbling around the edges, small changes to their behavior. And so what I advocate is well, you need a wholesale philosophy of technology, something that you can really believe in something that is based in your values. It's something that can help you make consistent, strong decisions about the role tech plays in your life. I think anything short of that and these powerful forces are just going to end up burrowing their way deeper and deeper until you're back to compulsively looking at a screen.
0: So how does one begin uh, to, to develop the, a practical philosophy of digital use that is genuine and actionable?
1: So the philosophy that I preach is digital minimalism. There could be others, but it's one that I've seen uh, to be effective out there in the wild and what I think works well. And the basic idea of digital minimalism is to take the ancient concept of minimalism, which says that focusing your energy on a small number of things that you know are very valuable almost always leaves you better off to try to instead spread that energy over many, bitty things, including bitty things of lesser value. So mm-hmm. it's this classic less is more philosophy that we could trace back from Marcus Aurelius through Thoreau and into Mary Kondo today. It shows up in all sorts of different parts of philosophy, all sorts of different parts of our life. And I'm basically taking that ancient philosophy and saying, let's apply it to your digital life, mm-hmm. which means you focus your time spent online on a very small number of carefully selected activities that give you huge value with respect to things you really care about. And then, in classic minimalist fashion, you're happy missing out on everything else that's pulling out your attention. All
0: right. That is going to cause some people some Cal, What do you mean? How can, you, how can I be happy if all my friends are chatting about whatever it is that they're talking about, however important that cause might be that they are discussing, and I'm not in it? How can I be happy knowing that that's happening?
1: Well, first of all, I encourage people to think about minimalism not in terms of a list of good and bad technologies, but instead about good and bad approaches to technologies. And so the basic logic is pretty self-evident, which is figure out what really matters to you, what you want to spend time on. Then for each of these things that are important to you, ask, what's the best way, if any, to use technology to help boost this? Because technology can be miraculous and can really help you get more value mm-hmm. out of the things you care And then most importantly, once you've answered those questions, be happy missing out on everything else. Now, depending on how you answer those questions, maybe spending time on a social media platform is a crucial part for you Mm -hmm. of using technology to boost something you value. But if you're a digital minimalist, you're going to be very careful about how you do it because they don't don't just ask what, they always ask how and when. So not just I use the service, but how do I use the service and when I use it. But I think for a lot of people that what they're going to find is that the total number of things they use... And the total amount of time they spend looking at their screens is going to significantly reduce while the value they get out of their tech is going to significantly increase.
0: So they're optimizing use.
1: It's optimization. Yeah, that's classic biddibalism.
0: And that means uh, – we'll explain the concept of the, uh, the return curve and how that, uh, that applies here because I, I think that's an, uh, one of the uh, important ideas uh, in, in sort of the argument that you're making.
1: It's an idea that, let's say, attention economy companies like social media doesn't want you to think about, but it's well-known in business circles that how you use something matters. You can optimize your use of something and uh, get better returns. Now, eventually you'll hit some point of no return where future optimization doesn't get you any more value, but the move from very little optimization to reasonable optimization can make a big difference in the return you get from a given process. And so this is a secret weapon of digital minimalists that when they decide, I'm going to use this service or this app because it's really useful for something I care about, they did step back and say, how do I optimize that? And so I talk about, mm-hmm. for example, visual artists who often get great value out of Instagram because to do their work, they have to be exposed constantly mm-hmm. to creative input. And on Instagram, they can find other artists of their genre mm-hmm. post works in progress. But digital minimalist visual artists will say, okay, let's run this through the optimization reader. Instagram is crucial to me because creativity and my output is crucial to me and this helps this, but how do I want to optimize my Instagram experience? And almost every artist I know who's got through this uh, exercise says, first of all, I don't need it on my phone. There's no reason for me to have Instagram on my phone if what I'm trying to do is get some creative inspiration. I don't have to look at it all the time. That seems like that's gonna be a big cost I don't need. So I'll just look at it on my computer. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I only really need to follow maybe 10 artists whose work I really admire. And then third, they only post so much. So from the perspective of when, maybe I'll log on Sunday morning. It'll take me about 30 minutes to see everything they posted and I'll get this, this jolt of targeted inspiration. Using just thirty minutes of my time every week, and now I'm getting ninety nine percent of the benefits while avoiding ninety nine percent of the cost. That's classic minimalist optimization.
0: That's a great example. So, uh, how would someone start to both develop their philosophy, identify their values, and then take action? Uh, if you if you could give us a, a brief introduction to how to do a digital declutter.
1: So the declutter is by pitch for the most effective way to actually make this transition and it says you need 30 days
0: 30 days
1: 30 days yes and the brief summary is for those 30 days you're basically stepping away from all optional technology in your personal life Uh, we're not talking about work you you can't use me as an excuse not to answer your boss's email Uh, okay social media online news video games streaming media Uh, those fun little apps that catch your attention, those fun little app games, anything that's optional in your personal life. You're away from it for 30 days. It's not just a detox. Uh, I'm not a fan of this idea that if you take a break and then come back to something that's bothered you that you made an improvement. So it's not just about a detox. It's about giving yourself the space required to figure out what do I care about? Hmm. What do I value? What do I want to spend my time? Experiment with the type of things that we used to do before we had ubiquitous screens. And then, once the 30 days are over, you're starting from scratch, right? You're not just going back to what you had before, you're starting from scratch. And for something to make its way back into your personal digital life, there has to be a really strong argument for what does this really help? What does this help that I really care about? And if it passes that high threshold, then you run it through that optimization rigor that we talked about before. And what you're going to end up with is a much more streamlined, much more optimized digital life that really is working for you as opposed to just transforming you into a gadget for the bottom line of a small number of companies.
0: Just working that slot machine that's sitting in your uh, in your in your jacket pocket, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. You don't have to be the guy who brings the slot machine with him everywhere he goes just to make sure that Facebook Incorporated can get a few more of your nickels.
0: Who is it that uh, that, that referred to uh, the smartphone as a smart machine, uh, as a slot machine?
1: So Tristan Harris was a former Google engineer. Before that, he traded B.J. Fogg's Persuasive Technology Laboratory at Stanford. So he knew a lot about how to use technology to change people's behavior, and he became essentially a whistleblower. And he left Google and turned around and said, basically... They're trying to hijack your brain. That was his terminology. And it was in a, in a famous 60-minute interviews that he said, yes, the smartphone, it's designed by these apps to become a slot machine in your pocket.
0: Because of intermittent positive reinforcement and then drive for social approval, as you as you briefly summarize uh, in, in your argument. And, and those are very powerful tools. So now, if you ask people to step away for 30 days, people who are addicted, behavioral addictions... Uh, are, are real and powerful, don't they experience withdrawal symptoms?
1: There is withdrawal. It's not as bad as, say, a serious substance addiction. It's, as you mentioned, the moderate behavioral addiction. Uh, some people, it's no problem. For other people, they have about 7 to 14 days where they find it difficult to resist grabbing their phone and looking for something to tap on, which is why you have mm. to take all the apps off, because if they're there... Even if you're is if not to use them, you might find yourself almost subconsciously wow. with that Facebook or Twitter app open before you even realize what happened.
0: So, so, so you start though by identifying what you care about, right?
1: Yeah, you need to know what you're all about, and that takes a little bit of space away from all these distractions.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you do that in the, in the grand experiment that you ran last year that is really the substance of what you've written up in, in digital minimalism? You, you asked people to volunteer to do this, and how did you help them in their uh, exploration of identifying and articulating what mattered most to them?
1: Well, I had to shift my plans in this regard because I thought this was such a big ask you know, 30 days without these technologies that a couple dozen people would sign up. (laughs) So I imagine I'd be pretty involved. We'd we'd be talking quite a bit. If they are in the D.C. area, maybe I would see them. Like, I'd really get a close view on what this is like for different people in different walks of life. But, you know, as I report, instead of two dozen, over 1,600 people signed up and said, yeah, I'm on board. So that was good news for my general... Uh, idea that this was an important topic, but it was bad news for my notion that I was going to be heavily involved in every participant's transformation.
0: So you couldn't. But I
1: did get a lot of reports, mm-hmm. and they did give me a lot of insight. And what I found is that those who actually took the time mm-hmm. to figure out, through these 30 days, what do I care about, which is hard. You have to reflect, you have to experiment, you have to think, you have to talk to people. The people who took that time are much more likely to succeed. That is, not fine did they slip back into their old digital habits. Well, the people who treated it just as a detox, like, hey, this is a nice break, they had a really hard time sparking permanent change. So that, that underscored my hypothesis. Yes. That a philosophy based in values is something that can persist, whereas just changes or experiments or habits or tricks have a harder time sticking where the forces are this powerful.
0: It has to have real deep meaning to your core, to your soul, that, that it's who you are and how you want to live that you have to be uh, articulate about and and really define that. We're
1: willing, to do, yeah, we're willing to do hard things if it's in the service of something we really care about. Mm-hmm. But if we just have a general equally that I don't like how much I spend on Twitter, that's not enough to mm-hmm. keep that slot machine jangle from, from not attracting your attention and eventually getting you back to looking at that phone.
0: So how did you get people to, to articulate their values? They, they, what, what kinds of things did did uh, did they do to to um, to make that uh, real?
1: I told them to write it down. Right, your goal was to to ultimately have a list, and to get to that list, you have to think, and thinking requires solitude, which is just you with no earbuds and no screens, just alone with your thoughts. I encourage people; this was helpful. To accept the idea that there's no right list that you're trying to figure out that mm-hmm. you can get the answer right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's your first preliminary approach to identify what matters to you. And the idea is this will evolve and that you should come back to this again and get it again and this this mm-hmm. this list of values and how you support it will evolve. So take the pressure off. Mm-hmm. Let's just start somewhere. Mm-hmm. What are things you know for sure, yes, this is really important? Or maybe things you think I think this is important and trust that this can evolve over time, but but nothing's gonna happen until you take a first step.
0: All right, Cal. So it starts with knowing what's important. Um, and and then, it's, uh, the, then the next step is, well, to define your technology rules, right? And what is that? How do people do it?
1: So what you know what is important? So you could ask for each, what tech do I want to use? Mm -hmm. If any, to support this thing I value. But as mentioned, you never want to just leave that question binary. So once you find some strong use for a piece of technology for one of your values, you want the rules to go around it. Right. Step back and give that reflection. How do I actually want to use this? Does it need to be on my phone? what features do I want to use? Do I can I turn off or block other features? How often do I want to access this? Can I get away with something simpler? Mm-hmm. So you're always interrogating mm. your technological landscape to try to look for really big ROI opportunities while avoiding a lot of the cost traps that are making people unhappy. So you know it's never just the what, it's also these rules, the how and the when that really is going to help you shift this cost benefit ratio decidedly in your advantage.
0: So it's really being intentional about which technologies you're using for what reason and, and then specifically how to optimize them so that you're using them in the in the most efficient way.
1: Right. And if you do that, you can get these huge wins out of tech. I mean, we're much better off because a lot of these miraculous innovations of the last 10 or 20 years, but if you really want to maximize that advantage, you have to have these rules. you got to have attention. You have to have optimization just like any other, let's say, skilled artist or worker is very careful about which tools he or her uses and for what purposes, it should be the same way with tech in your digital life. So what's, Make it its way in.
0: So what's a, what's a common uh, choice point that people face? You gave a great example about the artist on Instagram. Can you give us another example of, of someone who, uh, well, just a, a, a typical case of uh, someone who does this deep dive of thinking through what matters and then making conscious, deliberate choices about which technologies to allow in and then how?
1: Well, a common thing that came up in these reports was the use of Facebook groups. It, it turns out there's a lot of, let's say, school or community organizations that do a lot of coordinating using the group feature uh-huh. on Facebook. right? So a lot of people who go through this process say, hey, these groups, this community group I'm a part of, for example, is really important because I value being a part of my community and being involved, but I have to go on Facebook to access this group. So what should I do about it? So a common solution there is, first of all, like almost all of these decisions, no need need to do this on my phone. There's no reason to have the slot machine in the pocket. Mm -hmm. And multiple different people reported to me that there are both ways to change who you follow or plugins you can download for your browser that make it easy for you to log into Facebook and go to your group and see nothing else.
0: No ah. news
1: feed, no algorithmically generated information, no update from your uncle about what he thinks about the latest political situation. Just you go straight to the group. You get the information you need. You participate in that discussion, and you avoid everything else that you hmm. don't really value.
0: So you can build in those filters to again optimize your time and attention investment in on that on that platform.
1: Right. It's an instrumental view of all these technologies. What do I want? An to get instrumental
0: view. Yeah, I'm sorry, please.
1: Yeah, yeah. What do I want to get out of this? What's the right way to get that value? We're used to that in the world of business. Sure. We're thinking about tools or capital investment. Well, this is the same thing. It's just the capital is your time and attention capital as opposed to let's say uh, actual money. But Mm -hmm. it's the same idea. Okay, I want to get a good ROI of the attention capital I put into Facebook. So if you're if you have that Facebook group, you say, Hey, wait a second. There's a way that I can engage with this for ten minutes a week and get 99% of the value that I really care about. That's what I want to do as opposed to say, no, I'm gonna look at this 85 times a day, every single day, just because occasionally I need to visit the Facebook group. So it's a, when you get a digital and you get strategic, you really can shift these ratios to your advantage.
0: There are a number of practices that you identify um, that, that, that coincide with uh, this, this philosophy, uh, including don't click like. Why is that so important?
1: Well, one of the things that's become clear from the research literature is that digital interactions, so clicking like or leaving a comment or sending a text message, do not give us nearly the same satisfaction from a sociality perspective as analog conversation. So Mm -hmm. if there's anything analog, like right now what we're doing, where I could hear your voice and you could hear my voice and we could hear the timbre and we could hear the pacing.
0: I can hear that you you seem like you have a cold, Cal. Do I have that right?
1: You can tell that I have a cold. You would never know this <laughs> in, a, in a text message. Makes me appreciate
0: uh, all the more that you're with us tonight. <laughs> right. Exactly, I, w- I wouldn't know I'd, that.
1: You wouldn't know that unless I, unless I put some sort of suitably gross emoji.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yes.
1: But the analog stuff is important. We have huge centers of our brain that are optimized mm-hmm. to process these analog cues, it's what we expect. It's if we it's what we do when we when we socialize is what we've always done as a species. And when you strip it out, your brain doesn't think about the interactions as really need social interaction at all. Mm. So if you spend all day interacting with people on Facebook, leaving comments to saying happy birthday and maybe sending some text messages, maybe some Recently evolved parts of your frontal cortex as well aren't I social? I was interacting people all day long But the the old parts of your brain the social parts of your brain that have been evolved for millions of years as far as they're concerned You haven't talked to anyone and that you're lonely hmm. And that's why we see these paradoxical research reports where yeah. people who use social media more are more likely to be lonely mm-hmm. This is what's going on. It's displacing the real-world conversation, which is what we actually need to thrive as humans
0: real-world conversation. And at the same time, spending time alone is an important practice and is a, a big part of the opportunity cost that we, that we suffer uh, by our digital addictions, right? So tell, tell us a bit more about what, what you advocate for uh, in terms of solitude and why that's so important.
1: So when I say solitude in this book, I'm using a very particular definition, uh, which comes from another book called Lead Yourself First. And the definition used in this book, which I like, is that solitude is freedom from inputs from other minds. Mm -hmm. So it has nothing to do with physical isolation. It it doesn't matter if you're on a mountaintop or on a subway car. What matters from a solitude perspective is that you alone with your thoughts, or are you reacting to input that was created by Someone else, and mm. like someone else is by
0: So even music, which is the creative output of, uh, of another of, of an artist, uh, is 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 an interaction with another mind, isn't it?
1: Right. So if earbuds are in, you're not in a state of solitude. Or if you're glancing down at something, you're not in a state of solitude. But you could be, let's say, in a very crowded subway car. But if there's nothing in their, your ear, nothing in your hands, you could very well qualify for solitude. So it nothing to do with physical isolation. Mm-hmm. Now, something that's clear from both research literature, but also just looking at philosophers and poets and thinkers, you know, anyone who is smart and who has thought and has journaled or written at all about these topics all comes back to this conclusion that solitude is really important, that we have to spend time alone with our thoughts. It's it's how we self-reflect. It's how we grow Mm -hmm. uh, as a human. It's also how we extract insight from information. We can't just listen and read all day. If we really want to get value out of all this information, we have to also think about what we've encountered. Just That's why... Our mind, put it against the, the existing schemas for our, our structures, the existing structures of knowledge. And so solitude is key. We've never really had to worry too much about it because it used to be almost impossible to avoid solitude on a regular basis because it was impossible, you know, to avoid, at least occasionally, being in a situation with just you and your old mind. That just happened all day. Sure by happenstance.
0: Now it's only in the shower.
1: Yeah, and, and we're probably working on that. I think they'll waterproof these, these smartphones pretty soon. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's a problem. The smartphone plus ubiquitous wireless internet means it is now possible for the first time in human history to completely avoid any mode of solitude in a typical day. And this is not good for us.
0: Because we're you not we're I'm, not self-reflective. We're not uh, you know, ha- using that time to allow for the the brain to the mind to do its work of of creative insight uh, and to just to just think uh, and and it's just we've just become automatons in the sense of just continually processing other people's ideas. Uh, right. In what other ways is this dangerous? And and then I, I have a, a number of other questions about how to deal with the fact that other people might be uh, engaging uh, on these on these platforms, and you might feel compelled to. Um, for, for reasons of work or family pressure. But first the, the first, the first matter about what we can do to ensure that we have that, that time to process and to have our thoughts alone.
1: Well, it's, it sounds heretical, but it, it would have been very common, let's say, seven years ago, which is just regularly do some things without your phone. That's, that's basically all you need, not all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you're not, you shouldn't always be in a state of solitude. You would go, you get very lonely, it would be very difficult, but just on a regular basis, do some things where you don't have your phone with you. You'll be forced to be in solitude. You're forcing the issue. <laughs> and you, that's enough to get the benefits. That's enough to get mm-hmm. to get the value from this particular type of medicine. It's just on a regular basis, there are some things I do where I'm just me, and I'm out there, and I, I don't have my phone, I don't have earbuds in, and I'm just encountering the world and thinking I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds simple, but there's huge positive impacts you get from it.
0: It's so easy to try and then to observe what the impact is on your state of mind and your relationships with the rest of the world around you.
1: And your anxiety. This is the, the main thing I hear from people. Yes. When you take away all solitude, it raises up this background hub of anxiety because the brain can't handle it. And when they start to get solitude, this slowness back into their life on a regular basis, the background hub starts to quiet.
0: Hmm. And then what happens?
1: Well, then you're actually back to the normal state of operation that our mind is expecting, where sometimes you're interacting in the real world really intensely with someone. A lot of times you're just alone with your thoughts, you're thinking, you're processing things. Sometimes you're doing something very valuable and skilled, a, a, an activity that's challenging but that is meaningful from you. you know, other times you're working, other times you're sleeping, right? I mean, this type of mm-hmm. mix of activities that we've done, time immemorial memorial, is really useful to us, and it feels good, it feels satisfied, it feels normal. What's out of whack is what we're doing now, yes. which is let's minimize all of that to look at glowing pixels on a screen. That's not good.
0: And, and as you say, it's a, it's a recent phenomenon, but it has now become incredibly ubiquitous. So let's, you mentioned earlier you know, the optional um experiences that you can cut, what about those that are required? What if your work requires you to be on social media uh and and to be digitally connected on on the regular <laughs> how do, how do you manage in that kind of environment because there are many people whose you know whose livelihood kind of depends on their being uh regularly interacting with others uh through social media
1: well I talk about in the book that If you have to engage with social media professionally, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: engage with social media like a professional. And I actually spent time with some high-level social media professionals in the book so we get a sense of what that means. Mm -hmm. And a few things you'll notice is, first of all, if you're, let's say, a professional social media brand manager, your phone has nothing to do with your job. But your phone, that's about uh, taking the product, which is the, the average consumer, and extracting all their time and attention, creating that slot machine effect. Professionals don't look at social media on their phone. They're almost always doing it on a desktop. They're almost always doing it mediated through a more advanced piece Hmm. of software, like TweetDeck, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of these actually customer engagement software service platforms Mm -hmm. have very complicated and expensive modules that these corporate social media brand managers use, which allow them to do very precise searching and filtering and really get their finger on what's actually happening out there. I think all of that is instructive, because what it says is if you have to use these tools professionally, don't let that be an excuse for you now to just look at your phone all the time.
0: Mm -hmm. There are ways.
1: There's ways. Do it on your desktop. Don't do it on your phone. Have a schedule. Have a plan. Figure out what's going to give you high ROI. I go up three times a day. I have a post schedule. This is automated. I do this type of filtered search once a day to see what's going on. There's all sorts of different strategies that... I briefly summarized just to give their flavor. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to avoid is people using particular reasons why they have to engage with sub quarter of these technologies as the carte blanche that then uh, enables them to just look at a screen all day.
0: And what about if your family is one that stays connected through a group me or some some you know uh, message system or Facebook that... Uh, is important for your ongoing communication, especially if that family includes young people who are, um, you know, uh, just online all the time.
1: Well, the main thing I advocate is that when it comes to your relationships, assuming that you really value your relationships with your close family, and everyone I talk to does, so
0: right, <laughs> most people do. Give
1: it, yeah, give it serious thought. Right, yes. go beyond just "Hey, this is easy." And think, okay, beyond that, what actually is the best way for me to use technology to foster these relationships? Now, for some people who go through this exercise, they say, you know, whatever. I have far-flung family. Maybe Mm -hmm. I have siblings that are deployed overseas. Mm -hmm. And using some of these tech tools for the interaction is really the only way I'm going to get to do certain uh, interaction early. So that's what we're going to do. Of course, we'll have a schedule around it and and figure out actually how to maybe have more interaction Mm -hmm. online. Let's figure that out. But I also ran into a lot of minimalists who had been telling themselves a story, right? They, they had allowed the group text message, let's say, or a, a Facebook group with some family members to, to let them off the hook.
0: without Really mean-
1: knowing what's going on in their family's lives. I mean, I, hmm. I write about oh. one of these minimalists in the book who, who figured out, okay, yeah, this is helping me keep in touch with my brother. But is this the best way for me to do that? No, actually, what I need to do is have lunch with him every other week. You know, that's what she started doing. Now, she complained because she said he won't look up from his phone <laughs> during the lunches, right? But what she actually did, the serious exercise, if I really value this, what's the best way to serve it? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people come out and say, yes, this tech is helping me serve this value, but not at the level that I think I actually want to when I get in touch with my values. And, and for some people, it's a crutch mm-hmm. that, has, that has allowed them to say, look, I, I said how cute my good friend's baby picture instead of going to my good friend's house and say, look, I made you dinner. Can I help you with your laundry? Well, you, know, you have a new baby at home. What can I do that's useful? And it's that latter stuff that's more valuable. And but, so,
0: but a much yeah. bigger um, you know investment to be able to it do is. that, right?
1: Yeah. And well, this is a, a, another casualty of digital minimalism is that a lot of them don't use social media in the way that most people normally do, which means a lot of these weak tie relationships go away because if you're if you're serving your important relationships with a lot of time and attention, you really don't have anything left over for right. your you know, college roommate's brother that you met that one time. But for most people that's okay. Mm-hmm. We, we weren't evolved to try to maintain hundreds or thousands of weak tie social network connections. That's not crucial to human sociality, that's not crucial to human flourishing. Being close to your, your family, your good friends and your community, that is crucial. And the more energy you give that the better. But this weak tie connections, that's something that more or less didn't exist Mm -hmm. until these technologies came along in widespread use about six or seven years ago. We haven't had enough time to evolve to the point where we really need those to feel happy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to have a bit of a tough love message there which is Mm -hmm. if people you don't know well get no attention so that you can give really serious, meaningful conversations with those that are very important to you, the minimalist calculus says you're gonna be better off.
0: So, what about your kids? Um, there are a lot of parents listening, Cal. How do you advise them uh, to to manage their their children's growth into our current uh, social digital universe? Well,
1: the oldest of my three kids is only six years old right now. Okay. So, I'm not directly facing a lot of these issues in my own life, but I have been really following the related news, movements, and research literature on, let's say, adolescents in particular yes, and smartphone and social media use. And to me, it seems like this research literature is evolving in a bit of a distressing direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to say. No one study tells you the whole story. You have to look at the literature as a whole, and there is a lot of noise in this literature, and it is early, but it does seem to be strengthening towards this conclusion that smartphone use, and in particular, social media smartphone use is causing a very large rise in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders mm-hmm. among teenagers. I've seen And that. along with that comes the corresponding rise in hospitalizations for self-harm or suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. And my prediction, and again, this could go either way because you know, research literatures could zig and zag, but my, my prediction here is that we're getting close to a public health crisis. When it comes to the negative effect of these technologies on the developing and impressionable adolescent brain, and that in the next few years, we're going to see a cultural shift where instead of just saying, hey, what can we say? Kids these days are their phones, right? That's mm-hmm. just what they do. We're going to mm-hmm. shift from that to a place where we think it's pretty dangerous to give a 13 year old a smartphone. And the idea that you would is going to be something that's going to have more and more cultural disapproval. So I think that's something that's shifted. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sensing that shift, I'm picking it up for both young people and Mm -hmm. parents and educators. Mm -hmm. I think no one is happy with what's going on right now with children's mental health and these phones and these services. No one really thinks that they're all that indispensable for them or some part a a key uh, aspect of their social development. So I think we're going to see shifts there. And smartphones and teenagers is not something that's going to go together. After we get a couple of years down the line,
0: I think it's already happening. And we've had guests on the show talking about that uh, it, from a clinical, you know, psychology perspective. It it is it is here. Uh, the question is how you help your own kids with that issue when they might be facing, you know, extremely intense social pressures to be a part of the, the you know the online conversation. That's a real challenge. Um, and I, I know that you're not a developmental psychologist, so I I don't know that you'll have, uh, uh, a lot to say about that, but what are you planning to do with your own kids?
1: Well, if my kids, let's say were 13 right now, instead of six, four and nine months, I want to give them a smartphone. And then we would figure out what to do about that. We say, okay, uh, this is, there's going to be some hardships for this. Let's, let's figure out how to solve it. And, you know, I'm picking up when I talk to young people, a growing resistance among the young people themselves. They're not happy about this either. No. They're not happy about the Snapchat streaks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not happy about the fact they're not getting their driver's license or going to parties or getting in trouble, but just sitting there in their room and like an air traffic controller having to manage all these different streams. Right. And so they want something else too. And there's this interesting idea. Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, mm-hmm. has an interesting note Where he said, you know, when I talk to parents or I talk to principals, they don't need everyone else in the class to stop using these phones before they can convince their kid to do it. They need two or three people Mm -hmm. not to allow their kids to have phones. That's enough cover that almost anyone else who wants to do that could actually make the move. It's positive deviance
0: theory. You
1: don't have to convince everyone. We just need a few brave people. Okay. change can happen.
0: All right. You can't do it alone, but you don't need the whole class. Just a couple people to try something new. Cal, we are fast uh, approaching our end time. Uh, Let me ask you a question I've been asking everyone this year, and that is about accountability. Um, Hopefully, this year is the year of accountability. What do you do personally to hold yourself accountable for living and working in accord with your core values? What's the most important thing you do on that score? 30 seconds.
1: Well, I actually have a a notepad where I track the things that are most important to my values, what I want to do. I have some symbols for it and I track them every day so I can look at it in black and white. Was I successful or not this week?
0: So you, you, you keep that data right in front of you.
1: It's like the old Ben Franklin method. Let's, let's actually see it in black and white.
0: See it in black and white. Uh, and, and how does that help you?
1: Just knowing that you will be tracking it helps you make the right decisions at mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. When you have that temptation, okay, instead of doing my deep work, I'm going to you know look at my computer or do something else. Uh-huh. You know, okay, but at the end of the day, when I put those little tally marks like I do... Or how many hours of uninterrupted concentration I do today. If I have no tally marks to put down, I'm not going to feel good about it. Right. Maybe, I should, maybe I should avoid the temptation to turn on Netflix and actually get back to work again.
0: I would like to see those tally marks. You're probably not willing to share them with me, but uh, that, that sounds like a really good practice. Cal, um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Where's the best place for listeners to learn more about digital minimalism and the rest of your work?
1: Well, you won't find me on social media, but I I do love the internet. So at calduport.com, you can see I've been writing essays for over a decade. So there's a a lot there if you're interested in these ideas. There's a lot there to dive into.
0: Thank you. Fantastic work. (laughs) Really appreciate it, Cal. Great. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.